0: 8 demonstrated God's ability to use even the worst situations for good if we continue to love and trust Him. A terrible persecution of Christians broke out in Jerusalem after the martyrdom of Stephen, and Christ's followers were scattered across Judea and Samaria as a result. However, they entrusted themselves to God and continued to share the good news about Jesus wherever they went, and more and more people came to trust in Christ as a result. Luke mentioned that a Pharisee named Saul had been standing by, giving his approval as Stephen was stoned to death. We know that Saul witnessed how Stephen commended his spirit into God's care and how he cried out to the Lord for God's mercy to be upon his attackers. Today, we'll see how that prayer was answered as we learn what became of Saul and how he eventually became known as Paul, the greatest apostle and teacher of the New Testament church. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul revealed something of his own background. He had been born in Tarsus, and because that was a Roman city, he was a Roman citizen from birth. Though he was familiar with the Greek language and culture, he declared himself to be a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, he was as Jewish as a person could be. Why, he was even named after Israel's first king, Saul. He revealed that he came from the tribe of Benjamin and had been trained under the finest rabbis in Jerusalem. As a Pharisee, Saul was faultless when it came to his desire to follow the law of Moses, and being one of the religious leader's brightest students, he became their chief persecutor of Christians. So how did this man, who was such an enemy of the early church, come to serve Jesus Christ? The answer is found in Acts 9. Let's begin in verse 1, where we learn that though the apostles were preaching the gospel from town to town in Samaria and Judea, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem." I believe that Stephen's inexplicable courage and serenity to the end affected Paul, for he was immediately filled with a murderous rage against the people of God. I'm sure he truly thought that he was doing God's will in persecuting the Christians, but without realizing it, he was fulfilling Christ's own words to his disciples. In John 16 verse 2, where he warned, they will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. Saul's hatred for the believers was so great that when he learned that several of them had fled to Damascus about 140 miles away, he quickly decided to pursue them. In the early days of the New Testament, though the believers often met in each other's homes, they continued to maintain their Jewish customs of prayer and worship, so it wasn't unusual to find them at the local synagogue as well. Damascus had a large population of Jews, and it is thought that there were more than 30 synagogues in that city. So Paul and those who commissioned him must have been anticipating many arrests as he hunted down any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, wanting to bring them to Jerusalem as prisoners. At this early stage in the life of Christ's church, those who belonged to Jesus were not ...not yet known by the name of Christian. In fact, they only came to be known by that term several years later. Initially followers of Christ were referred to as being those who belonged to the way which stemmed from what Jesus had said in John chapter 14 verse 6 when he proclaimed I am the way and the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me with the necessary letters of authority in hand Saul set out on what must have been a difficult journey for him the week-long trip would have had to have been made on on foot and because he was a Pharisee he would have had nothing to do with the gods the sanhedrin sent along with him such a long and solitary trek would have given Saul much time to think and the holy spirit much time to work upon his heart and As he neared his destination, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and Saul encountered the risen Lord, Jesus the Messiah. This man, who was so sure of his own righteousness, who felt so elevated in all things religious, fell on his face before Christ. Jesus asked him, "'Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me?' That word for persecute in the Greek is dioko, which means not only to harass, trouble or mistreat someone on account of something that they hold to, but it also means to drive someone away or to push away. Christ's words reveal here that what is done to Jesus' followers is really done to Christ himself, which is something we would do well to remember. As a Christian, We may be rejected, pushed away by others, but we should not take it personally, for in truth it is Christ whom they reject and the Holy Spirit whom they refuse. I wonder how Saul must have felt at that moment as he suddenly realized that Christ was very much alive that everything Stephen had said was true and that for all his desire to protect the law of Moses, he had actually disobeyed it and had been fighting against God himself. Jesus instructed him to go to the city and wait to be told what to do. And in that simple statement, we see an incredible truth of the Christian life. Up until this moment, Saul had been doing what he thought was best. But from this point forward, Christ would direct his steps. It really is no different for any of us who would follow Jesus, for we must all cease to follow our own will and submit to the Lord's instead. For some time, Jesus had been nudging Saul in the right direction, but in beast-like fashion, all Saul had done was kick against the goads. But now that he was brought to his knees on the road to Damascus, Saul finally yielded to Christ's will. And notice how Saul was quick to obey Christ's command. Look at verse 7. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see any one. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. The men who were following Saul were astonished by what they heard, though they didn't see anyone. It soon became evident to them that Saul was completely blind from his encounter with the radiance of the risen Lord. So they quickly took him by the hand and assisted him into the city. Can you imagine what this must have been like for Saul? He who had been so secure in his own abilities and his own strength was powerless to find his way without help. God most certainly humbled him. We're told that for three days he was blind and didn't eat anything or drink anything. What anguish Paul must have experienced during that time, and what terrible regret and guilt he must have felt for all that he had done against the Lord's people. God was surely using physical blindness to teach Saul about his own spiritual blindness. But that was not the only lesson he had to learn. You see, God was about to heal Saul using one of the very people whom Saul had sworn to destroy. Enter Christ's disciple Ananias in Acts chapter 9 verse 10. This is the second time we've met someone by that name in Acts. The first Ananias, in Acts chapter 5, had been a liar and a scoundrel. But this man was a true servant of Christ. Luke explains in verse 10, In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. "'Lord,' Ananias answered, "'I have heard many reports about this man "'and all the harm he has done to your saints, your holy people in Jerusalem. "'And he has come here with authority from the chief priests "'to arrest all who call on your name.' "'But the Lord said to Ananias, "'Go, this man is my chosen instrument.' To carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings, and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he has to suffer for my name. Though Ananias was used by God in a powerful way, he also was a man of absolute obscurity. He was never mentioned before this and outside of Paul's own account of his conversion in Acts 22 verse 12, Ananias will not be mentioned after this either. And yet he really is one of the heroes of the early church. In his testimony in Acts twenty two, Paul says only that Ananias was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He was a quiet, faithful servant of God who probably never anticipated how God would use him. God directed Ananias to go to Judas's house on Straight Street and ask for Saul of Tarsus. And though God said that Saul would be expecting him, Ananias was hesitant. He'd heard about this Pharisee and all he'd done to God's people in recent months Ananias also knew that Saul had come to Damascus to arrest all those who associated themselves with Christ's name. At that moment, as he contemplated the risks of walking into what might really be a trap, I'm sure that God's command must have seemed like madness to this disciple. Though hesitant at first, Ananias took courage from all that God revealed to him about Saul. The Lord said in verse 11 that Saul was praying, that he was in communication with God himself. Not only was Saul listening for God's voice, but he had received a vision that a man named Ananias would come and restore his sight. God assured Ananias that though Saul had once been his enemy, he was now in fact God's chosen instrument to carry his name not only to the Gentiles, but to God's own people, the Jews, as well, and that he would suffer many things for the Lord he had once persecuted. Overcoming his misgivings, Ananias obeyed God's command— Verse 17 tells us Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. How beautiful this passage is. Ananias might well have approached Paul with suspicion or disgust as if he were carrying out an unpleasant task he could have so easily begun with accusations about all that saul had done but instead his first words to him were brother saul what kindness and what love to address him in this way how marvelous that the holy spirit had enabled ananias to forgive saul for all his wickedness towards those who belonged to christ Under any other circumstances, Saul and Ananias should have been the most bitter enemies, but they were brought together as brothers, all because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Placing his hands on Saul, Ananias confirmed that Jesus had sent him to restore Saul's sight, and he told him that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit also. Saul, filled with new vision of what God was going to do, got up at once and was baptized even before he took the time to eat or drink anything. And remarkably, we're told that Saul then spent several days with the very believers he had been planning to arrest in Damascus. I find this whole story of scripture remarkable for not only does it show the courage of God's servant Ananias and the others who were willing to associate with Saul despite the fact that he could have brought untold danger to them but it also shows the power of the Holy Spirit at work to unite people who were opposed to one another only hours before. It was around this time that Saul started going by the Greek version of his name and became known as Paul. In verse 20, it reveals that he lost no time in getting down to the work that God had called him to. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests?' Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Paul immediately began to preach about Jesus in the synagogues of Damascus. What an act of bravery that was. Remember, it was to these very synagogues that Paul had been sent to arrest local Christ followers. Surely it would have been much easier for him to begin his Christian witness somewhere else in a place where his past was not known and where it couldn't be held against him. But Paul was determined to show them that he was a changed man and that he was not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. The fact that he had declared to them that Jesus is the Son of God is no small thing. When Jesus made this very statement about himself in John chapter 5, verse 18, the religious leaders immediately wanted to stone him, for they understood it to mean that he was making himself equal with God. And in John chapter 10, verse 33, they justified their actions telling Jesus that their anger was because You, a mere man, claim to be God. So when Paul announced Christ to be the Son of God, he was not only declaring that Jesus is the Messiah, he was declaring that Jesus is God himself. They were astonished at what they heard. In truth, the Jews living in Damascus were so bewildered by the change in Paul and the message that he now preached that he quickly met with resistance. And although Luke does not mention it, Paul tells us in his own account In Galatians chapter 1 verses 15 to 18 that he had to leave the area of Damascus living for three years in Arabia before he was able to later return to that city. Luke picks up Paul's story after his return to Damascus by merely saying in verse 23, After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. The Jews in Damascus went from merely being baffled by Paul's teaching the first time he was there to wanting him dead when he returned. And because they were watching the city's only exit by day and by night in the hope of seizing Paul, other believers in Damascus helped him escape by lowering him in a large basket from a window in the city wall under cover of darkness. A hunted man making a humiliating exit, he nevertheless set off for Jerusalem. But what kind of welcome would he get there? Would those in Jerusalem receive him with open arms? Look at verse 26. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. Paul was surely beginning to understand just how much he must suffer for the sake of Christ. When Luke reports that he tried to join the disciples, the Greek he uses actually means that Paul kept trying to join them. But again and again, he was rejected because they doubted his motives. Yes, he'd preached Christ and been persecuted in Damascus, but in all fairness, where had he been for three years? Was he just a fair-weather follower, a pretender, or worse, still working for the Sanhedrin? It was understandably difficult for them to believe that a man like Saul of Tarsus could change, and they were hesitant to trust him. However, Barnabas, the son of encouragement, eventually came to his aid. Look at verse 27. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul, on his journey, had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. You know, it touches my heart to see how God used different people in different moments in Paul's life as his agents of grace. First, Paul was won by the dying prayer of Stephen, who asked God to forgive him. Then Ananias was the instrument of forgiveness and healing for Paul. Now Barnabas comes alongside to show love and kindness and support to Paul as he seeks to obey God's will. And it is because of Barnabas's encouragement that the church leaders in Jerusalem eventually came to accept Paul. Bold as ever, Paul began to move around Jerusalem freely and to speak for Christ. And Luke emphasizes that he talked and debated with the Grecian Jews in particular. Most likely, these were the very Jews who had belonged to the synagogue of Freedmen, those who had falsely accused Stephen some years before. If you remember, Luke mentioned that synagogue in Acts chapter 6, and he pointed out that many of the Jews in it were from the region of Cilicia, Paul's hometown of Tarsus was a city in Cilicia, making it very likely that he had originally been one of the members of that very synagogue. And so he began his ministry in Jerusalem by disputing with the same Greek-speaking Jews who had killed Stephen. Can you imagine their response now that their former co-conspirator Came to them arguing the truth of what Stephen had preached. No wonder they wanted to kill him also. In his Acts 22 testimony, Paul gives more details of exactly what happened at this time, and he reveals When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said. Leave Jerusalem immediately, because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these men know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Apparently, God warned Paul in a vision that he was to leave Jerusalem quickly because the Greek Jews would never accept his message and wanted to kill him. The Lord also reminded him at that time of his commission to take the gospel to the Gentiles. The other church leaders were quick to come to his aid and spirited Paul away via the port of Caesarea back to his hometown of Tarsus. See in verse 31, then the church throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. Some have humorously suggested that Paul was banished back home by people who didn't quite know what to do with him or the stir that he caused. They point to what verse 31 says, that then, the implication being that with Paul out of the way, then the churches had a time of relative peace and grew steadily. Quite an interesting beginning for the man who dominates the rest of the book of Acts. The next time we see Paul is in Acts 11, which is actually seven years later. We're not told specifically what happened to him during the course of those seven years, but certainly he was not inactive and he continued to do the work that the Lord had given him to do. My encouragement to us is that we do the same. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for the story of Paul, how a man who was so far from you was not too far for your hand to reach. Lord, I also want to thank you for Ananias who was willing to go to Saul. And Lord, we pray, though you may not use us like Saul or Paul as he became in your kingdom, Lord, surely you can use us like Ananias by sending us to just one man, one individual who could then be used greatly for your kingdom and for the spread of the gospel. Lord, we thank you so much for blessing us today and for speaking to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at In the Word.